Welcome to Under the Radar, a show about independent iOS app development. I'm Marco Arment. And I'm David Smith. Under the Radar is never longer than 30 minutes, so let's get started. So continuing our spring quiet period of developer news, uh, I figured uh, we figured that we would do a little more Q&A, because when we asked for questions a couple weeks ago, we got tons of really good ones. And we have enough now for one or two more episodes, so we're going to try to knock these out. And some of them are really good questions that I really wanted to address. So we're going to start with Boz the Developer, who asks, if you start working on a new app, what do you do before you start writing any code? So for instance, do you write out all the classes and details on paper, or do you just draft a general overview of how all the classes relate to each other? So what do you do for this, Dave? Um, very little, um, if anything, (laughs) I, so I have done the kind of project, I mean, this was, and it's literally academic for me where like I, in school, I would have to like do build the big, was it UML diagrams of your classes and your class hierarchies and all that type of thing beforehand. And I've only ever done it in an academic setting and in a practical setting, what I find is most useful is to get something working more uh, as, as quickly as you possibly can. And for me, that means to just start writing code. And I worry less about having things structured or organized in the, you know, the, the, the this most optimized way possible or anything like that um, at, at the start. Because the reality is I know the least about the problem I'm trying to solve when I sit down to write for the first time. And so any decisions or choices or structures that I'm going to create at that point are sort of necessarily the least informed and probably worst um, versions of that that I could. And so I'd rather dive into the problem, start trying to solve it as best I can. And from there, as I develop more and more from understanding of the problem domain, understanding how things are actually going to work in practice, um, that's when I start to start to have a bit, not, I'm never formal in my sort of class hierarchy or structure. Um, but as I go, I will, you know, develop and, and move things to, um, you know, the structure that makes sense for the long term. You know, the initial kind of quick spurt, maybe not necessarily is even as worried about, um, you know, following good practices and structure around the, you know, the way I'm relating things or those types of things. I'm just trying to get something working so I can better understand the problem. And once I understand the problem, then I can actually make choices um, about how to do things. But I never really write it all down. Um, I mean, I the only thing I ever sometimes will write down ahead of time is going to be like sketching out a UI quickly or something like that, just to play with it. But I've never, I never really get into the sense of you know writing things down uh, on the code side. I've ne- never really found to be particularly useful. All this time, I thought I was just lazy and undisciplined, but you've now given me justification for why I also don't do any of these things that, you know, I think your point is excellent about how, like, you know, you're, when you design on paper, you know the least about what's, what it's actually going to take, really. Um, you know, it's, to me, like, there's, there's, you know, software development is a really big field, and there's lots of different ways to do it. There's lots of different situations in which you might want or need to do things in a more formal or planned ahead way than others. I don't think iOS app development is one of those things. Uh, I, I don't think you need this level of formality and planning uh, for what most people listening to the show are, are actually working on. I, I think the you know it, it's it, you can build software like you like you build a bridge 
like where, like you you design the entire thing first and people have built lots of bridges before so they have a really good idea of what it takes to build bridges you know these days and and you can sketch it all out and then build it from the ground up and then you reach the top and then you can drive a car over it and you know it'll work because you plan everything out and everything is like a it's like known problems known conditions known requirements software is rarely that way uh and especially the kind of software that we write it, it is rarely that established that known in advance um or that repetitive uh, you know mo- what makes software planning so hard is that most of the time no one has ever done what you're doing in the exact way you're doing it before and that's why it's so hard to you know estimate time and estimate budget and everything and so you know the way i build software is not the way you would build a bridge where you sketch everything out first the way I build software is how you would build the most dangerous, worst bridge project in the world, which is like you have somebody like hold a board across the water first and somebody rides a tricycle over it and sees if it works. And then slowly you replace the temporary parts that you've made with like the real thing that could actually like you know be a little bit better and support things properly. That's kind of how I make my software is like I try to get something working as quickly as possible that's terrible. And then if it's a thing that I think is a good idea or that has legs, no pun intended, then I will, you know, start making it correct and, you know, start building it right and build out parts of it that were special case just to get the prototype working and, you know, add UI and polish things and add, you know, make it more robust. That's how I build software. And all of that is happening just by doing the code. It's all jumping right in and starting right in the code. There's no planning or anything. And I don't think, I mean, in an academic sense, certainly I would like to be more disciplined and more planned and, and everything like that. But A, I can't do that. <laughs> and just my personality and my work style is not that. And B, I don't think for the kinds of apps that most of us write that that level of formality is necessary. To me, that's a lot. It's just a lot of overhead and, you know, for the way I work. If the way that you work is more you know that way if if you benefit from designing things ahead of time writing things ahead of time that's a different story that's a different work style uh, but for me I, I have never found that uh, useful yeah and i think it's i think what you just said there though is a very important point that i've worked with people back uh, when i used to work in a more uh, in an actual office environment and i had a you know i had a good friend of mine who the way the way that like the way that I think about a problem is that I write code to explore it. Like that was the way that I do it. That's my like that initial like twenty, thirty percent of the work is me in Xcode writing code and that's that that's how I think I think a problem through. I had a friend who he would think a problem through by exploring it um, on a whiteboard and he would draw class diagrams and like that was you know that initial bit of time that he would like that's how he could think through the problem best and understand it most um like he wasn't coming at it from a sense of he wasn't trying to be academic about it like he wasn't trying to be complete or comprehensive but there is certainly it's whatever finding whatever is that best tool for you to gather as quickly as possible the maximal amount of information about the problem and you're understanding what you think your solution to it might be like whatever that form that takes that's great um, but I think it's probably important moreover to just th- remember that, you know, that initial work is entirely speculative and isn't, some, you know, you are trying to understand something better so that you can make better choices down the road rather than trying to make a lot of choices um, up front and then sort of being holding yourself to those or expecting those choices to, to be good down the road. Lou Brothers asks, 
How do you decide which ideas you won't work on? Uh, in some ways, this is, it's, this <laughs> I is love a problem. This question. It's like, I, I think, so, so it's a decision I think we have to make a lot, um, is, is something. I think one of the, as soon as you, you find yourself in a position where you're self-employed, suddenly you have the blessing and the curse of having, you can work on anything you want, basically. Um, you know, you can be like a little bumblebee, just flit, you know, flitting from flower to flower to flower if you want. You can dive into one thing and only work on that. You, you, you're now in a position that you have to make that choice. You have to decide uh, what you're going to work on. And then um, I think the harsh reality that you have to come to grips with is the fact that anytime you say, anytime you say yes to one project, you are implicitly saying no to like 100 other projects. Um, that your time is a finite resource. And so you are going to have to decide, you know, anytime you, you can't, you can't do everything. And anytime you every, every day you're saying no to way more things than you're saying yes to. Um, and so I think primarily the way that I tend to focus in terms of answering the ideas that I I won't work on are the ideas I, 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 my focus tends to be on what are the ideas that I am excited to work on. And I just keep a running list of the ideas that I have otherwise. Um, and that list will grow and sometimes things will fall off of it. Sometimes I'll pick things up from that and, and start working on them. Um, but I find that a much, the most constructive thing I found is to just focus on what am I excited about? What do I think would have the best impact on my business financially? Um, what, what do I think are, is a nice quick win? Like those are the things that I tend to decide about what I'm going to actually, what, what I want to work on. And then the things that I won't work on are just everything else, which is this gigantic pile of other apps that I have, other ideas that I have to work on things. Um, and you know, it's, it's impossible for me, I find to manage too much about that. I mean, there's a little bit of maybe there are some times I have an idea and then the important exercise of trying to honestly and genuinely think it through where it's like, oh, that's a great idea. And then sometimes you'll sit down for a little bit and just kind of like think about it or you'll have it on your back burner um, as you're going about your daily life. And all of a sudden you're like, wait a second. Yeah, no, that's a terrible idea. And it'll just kind of like you can discount it. Um, but otherwise, I just tend to focus on what am I excited to work on? I'll go work on that. Um, and I'm in, I'm implicitly saying these are the anything that isn't that idea I'm not going to work on right now. Yeah, for me, it's it, it, there, there's a lot of business considerations that go into it. Like, and and a lot of this just comes down to you know you have a limited amount of time really in the day, and and to, and you have a limited amount of focus of how many things you can focus on at once, and how many things you can maintain at once. And so it it's very much a you know a question of business uh, needs and and priorities, and then mostly it's a question of time management. Uh, and so the things I won't work on are typically things that I think one day, oh, wouldn't it be cool if this or some opportunity comes up or like, oh, that, that would actually be kind of cool to work on or that might be successful. But where the amount of time it would take is disproportionate to its benefit in in my life. And it's and it's it's ways too much on the cost side of mainly mainly of time. Where like any new thing I take on is going to have to find time to be done from the things I currently do with my time. You know, like the time is a zero sum game. Like it has to any time that you that you invest in something new has to come from something else. This is opportunity cost. You know, so if something sounds really cool and it 
doesn't have that much business upside and maybe it doesn't have any kind of like you know synergy with anything else i'm doing or doesn't have much to do with anything else i'm doing but it's only going to take a little bit of time then i might do it as a fun side thing like if i wanted to make a game and which i've had game ideas before they're terrible but if if i wanted to make a game and for some reason i had a good idea and it was only going to take like a week to make and by the way it never takes just a week to do anything but (laughs) assume that you had something that had like a really short time commitment and then you were done it there was no ongoing maintenance no ongoing support no ongoing updates again never happens but <laughs> suppose you had something like that i'd be more likely to consider doing that as a fun as a fun side thing or as an experiment to learn new, you know new, te- new technology or whatever but if i look at bigger projects things that require ongoing commitments so anything that requires updates support um new podcasts that i do you know because that's like oh you, you gotta start recording this thing every week or two or three um and so like you know new new things like that new commitments or just you know new apps that you know that will require ongoing work i really have to be very harsh with that with myself and i have to say like what happens if this succeeds first of all like it, it's easy when you have a cool idea oh let's try this but what happens if it succeeds? Then you have to maintain it. Then you're in the business of X, right? And this is how I accidentally became the owner of a magazine and an ad blocker. Uh, <laughs> like, I wanted to do the cool thing of making the new project that had nothing to do with everything else I was doing at the time. Uh, and then it turned out, you know, I had to run that after that. And it became just a job. And I didn't want those jobs, it turns out. Or they weren't what I thought they would be, you know. So now I try to focus a lot more. Anything that's going to be requiring ongoing work for me, I try to make it related to or beneficial to my main businesses, which are Overcast and being a tech podcaster. Like that's those are my two main sources of income. Those are my two main focus areas. Anything that is not related to those things has to be really really awesome and also require really really little time for me to do it so you know i'm i'm working on like you know multiple audio tools and everything nothing big don't worry but like you know just like small small audio tools and stuff um like forecast and so other stuff like that um because those are all kind of in the service of both overcast and my job as a podcaster other things that come up like i wanted to you know I, i talked the other day about oh if i if i brought back my ad blocker then I would do it in this way, right? And, but I'm not going to do that because that's a whole different business. It has, it has nothing to do with my main stuff and would require maintenance. So it's not worth it. It's not a good idea. I have had, yeah, as I said, game ideas. But I'm not a game developer and I, and I don't really want to become one. That's a whole different skill set that, first of all, I don't think I'd be very good at. Uh, but second of all, it's totally different and it has no overlap really with what I do today. And so it, it would require, I think, a lot of overhead, a lot of shifting, and I don't think the outcome would be worth it enough for me. So that's, that's kind of how I decide. Um, just like, you know, big, big picture, it's, it's a lot about looking forward about what happens if what I'm doing actually succeeds and this has to become like a part of every week of, of my life now for the for the you know the, for the next indefinite number of years. Like, how do I is that is that actually the outcome I want? And if it isn't, I probably shouldn't do that idea. Um, on a smaller scale, on the idea of like features or you know aspects of the apps that I am working on, 
how do I decide what ideas of the apps that I work on? Uh, or how do I, what, what, uh, what features of the apps uh, that I work on? That is m- a lot of the same logic that would go into the bigger decisions of basically like, do I want to be supporting this forever? And, and by the way, I don't get this right every time. I mean, that's why I had a magazine and an ad blocker, and that's why there's features in my apps that I am dying to remove at all times. Like, and no matter, anytime you ask me, there's always some feature of whatever app I, I'm primarily working on at that point that I'm like, man, I wish, if I, if I did it over, I would never do this feature. I would never add this thing. You know, for Overcast, that's probably the episode limit. Uh, I, I hate that feature. And oh, and definitely play next by priority. That is a huge pain. <laughs> but other, other than those two things, um, you know, for the most part, I decide when I'm adding a feature, like, is this something I want to support forever? Is this something that I want to, in the future, not have to worry about, like, people withholding their star reviews because I removed it and they were mad? Like, stuff like that. Like, you have to, like, project this forward. If it's something that has a server-side component, what happens if everyone starts using this feature? You know, if I, like, I did file uploads for premium members, what happens if tons of people sign up for that do we want to be in that business also think about you know the the needs that these features might have so for instance people have often requested um some kind of written review or comment system for podcasts where people could you know just similar to what itunes has where people could you know review podcasts or you know add add their commentary that's visible to the public or anything like that problem with that is once you have users inputting text that's visible to other users you need to have basically community management and spam control and abuse control and ways people can file complaints and policies around how you deal with that. You have to be able to do that in multiple languages because people will write things that you can't read. Um, so there's, it, it becomes a much bigger problem uh, than just like, oh, wouldn't it be nice to have a few comments on, on a podcast? And so stuff like that, it's, it's, you, know, you got to look at what, what, what it actually needs to do it right. And if, if it's too burdensome, then no way not worth it yeah and i think too there's i think it's interesting when you when you take that question and focus it on features that you won't work on rather than just like new opportunities that you'll pursue because i think something i also think about is how i tend to make sure that an idea or a feature is going to benefit most of my users um is the is a filter i think more recently that i've taken i've started adopting that I won't work on. I try to avoid ideas that only benefit very small um, audiences or part or subsets of my app. And like that's not universal. Sometimes I certainly will, you know, have features that are not uh, quite so universal. But I find that it's it's so easy sometimes to focus in on kind of this really interesting, tricky problem or something kind of really. Like it's, it's ostensibly a really cool feature to add. Um, but one of the filters I apply to it now is I always ask myself, like, is this going to improve the, you know, the, the use of the app for 80%, 90% of my users? And if it does, if it doesn't, then it has to be a feature that I feel really strongly about otherwise. Um, or at the very least, it's, you know, it's a feature that it'll, I'll push down the priority of that feature. Um, and try and pull up anything where I think, you know, this will impact a lot of people because I think it's so easy to just want to solve the interesting problem and focus on like that side of things rather than viewing it from the user's perspective. Cause I, th- you know, you, and it's also probably also important to remember that the users you hear from are such a teeny 
proportion of your user base typically um, that it's so easy to get a, dis- a distorted view um, of you know what people are actually using in practice and you know trying to keep that mindset that like a lot of ideas you sh- probably shouldn't work on are you know are these ideas that are kind of pet features and would really only affect a few people and then you know you're spending all this time and getting a relatively small um, you know return from it even just from a purely pragmatic perspective. We are brought to you this week by Linode. With Linode, you'll have access to a suite of powerful hosting options. With prices starting at just $5 a month, you can be up and running with your own virtual server in the Linode cloud in under a minute. Linode offers industry-leading performance with native SSD storage, a 40-gigabit network, and Intel E5 Xeon processors. They have 10 data centers now spread across the world, so you can serve your customers even quicker than before. There's also an API at Linode that allows you to easily automate tasks or develop custom applications in the cloud, and everything is manageable via the command line. All of Linode's pricing tiers feature hourly billing, and then they have a monthly cap, so that that, that way you don't end up paying more than the monthly rate for any of the services. And Linode offers now additional storage, too. They have block storage now out of beta, and that's available in Fremont and Newark so far, and they will be expanding it to all their data centers by June. Linode is great for things like hosting web apps like what we do. Dave and I are both longtime Linode customers. We we love them. They're, they're just fantastic. Um, so you can host app backends like we do. You can host websites, large databases, mail servers, VPNs, Docker containers, private Git servers, and so much more. And Linode is hiring right now. So if that interests you, go to linode.com slash careers. So Linode has fantastic pricing options available. Plans start at just $5 a month. That gets you one gig of RAM. And they offer lots of plans going up from there for your various needs, including high memory plans. As a listener of this show, if you sign up at linode.com slash radar, you will be supporting us and you will get $20 towards any Linode plan. So if you want to use that one gig plan, that's four months free. And with a seven-day money-back guarantee, there's nothing to lose. So go to linode.com slash radar to learn more, sign up, and take advantage of that 20 credit or use promo code radar 2018 at checkout thank you so much to linode for supporting this show mark siri asks how would a converged marzipan world change your approach to app development and this is of course referring to the rumored uh cross mac ios uh app development framework uh codenamed marzipan that apple is allegedly working on according to all the rumor sites right now so how if we get that, if you can make iOS apps that also work on the Mac with minimal changes, uh, presumably, um, and of course this is all a lot of speculation, but in that world where that happens, how would that change your approach to app development? I struggle a bit with this question because I look at my app portfolio and I can imagine there's a couple of my apps that could sort of maybe work. Um, on the Mac, um, as a, you know, like I have a recipe organizer and like, that's an app that could certainly benefit from being, uh, on a, on a Mac. But by and large, I think that the awkward thing or the tricky thing about, you know, sort of this kind of grand unified approach, I think the biggest change it would honestly have is that I think it might be, it isn't so much that it allows me to build Mac apps, but it may indicate what the future of apps in general um, that Apple is heading towards might be um, that if there's a new in, in the same way that when you know size classes became a thing, it started to indicate you know a year or two ahead of 
when we finally got things like, you know, some of the iPad Pro where you can have two side by side apps or, or a skinny slide over apps or multiple size iPhones or any of those types of things. I think what I would be most interested to see here is probably not there's going to be some opportunities for sure that like now it makes it slightly easier for iOS developers to move their apps to the Mac. And like, that's great. But the reality is, I think in the scope of the size of iOS as a user base and as a marketing base, like that, that, that you know, the Mac is, is vanishingly small. Like I don't think that is going to have a material impact, um, you know, on my business in that way. And so I think it is interesting, certainly, and I'll, I would explore potentially, you know, adopting some of those paradigms and certainly if they do it in a way that is very straightforward. Um, but I think the biggest changes that it might make is it may tweak how I think about the way I should structure my apps in a way that like, you know, for example, now all my apps are flexible in their layout. Uh, you know, I don't do any fixed layout apps anymore because Apple has sort of indicated that that's where we should be heading. And I'd be very curious in this world where they're kind of creating this more um, unified uh I don't know, this unified framework for going from, you know, the smallest iPhone to a 27-inch iMac, like, they're, I think they're going to be indicating to us some kind of broad lessons or goals that we should make. And, you know, if that's what they do, then I think that's the approach I'd take and just kind of keep that in the back of my mind. But beyond that, probably not too much. Yeah, I, I think that, pre- that pretty much covers it. I mean, like, on, on the code side, yeah, I agree. I think layout would be one of the biggest challenges um, because, like, you know, right now, like, the, like we have size classes that basically tell you whether something is tiny or massive, and that's it. <laughs> like, that, that is not a very granular approach. It's, you know, it's nothing like what you had, like, with CSS media queries and stuff like that. So, um, so on a code level, I think it would be challenging to make apps that actually scaled well uh, to all the various sizes and aspect ratios and situations and things like that. Um, from from a design side it that really depends on a lot a lot of like how it's done what you know how what kind of form does this framework take what is it how do ios quote you know quote ios apps look on the mac what how do they work how is navigation done stuff like that um from a business side which i think is is the more probably probably the only one we can really easily speculate on right now i think it's very likely that the the app store side of it would not be a separate purchase that they would probably update the Mac app store for the first time ever to probably have, you know, iOS apps that could basically opt into being on it. And it would be one unified listing, just like it is between iOS, between the iPhone and the iPad and even, and and the TV app store kind of does this. Um, So I feel like, you know, from if you, if you're still relying on one time purchase, that, that's probably not going to go well in your favor here. It's probably going to be like one purchase gets you the same app on all the platforms. Uh, So be be prepared for that. Um, Otherwise, you know, for me, where I currently have no presence on the Mac, uh, so I'd be starting from zero there and wouldn't be cannibalizing anything, uh, it's kind of great because I could have a Mac version of my app, which so far has just not been worth the time to make because it's so different and it would have relatively low usage. So it's not worth it right now, but it would become worth it probably if it's not that much work, uh, you know, to, to make, to, to basically port my app to the Mac in some kind of reasonable way, that would be awesome. And it would open up new market share, new usage. My app is, you know, at least it's like, you know, half 
ad revenue based. So that's more people looking at the ads more of the time so that I get more revenue from that. And so I think it could be, uh, you know, it could be a really good thing. All right. And finally, if we can do this quickly, uh, any hot tips on accessibility? This is a question from Benjamin Jex. How do you make accessibility part of your workflow and how has it helped improve your projects? So I think the, the, at its simplest, it, it, the best way to improve your kind of like accessibility workflow is just to keep it in the back of your mind as you're developing. And this is just, it's just, and I find that it is useful and it helps improve my projects, I think, because when I think about how I would express, and usually when I, accessibility, I mean, accessibility is, is a very wide and far-reaching topic. And I think there's, gets into things like use of color, use of uh, white space, uh, how large your fonts are, how flexible your layout is for different size fonts. Um, but often I, what I find, but something that I find really useful is even just to think about my UI from a, uh, a voiceover uh, perspective. And I, there is something very useful about making sure that your UI would make sense for somebody using voiceover. And if it doesn't, there's a good chance it's also going to be confusing or cumbersome for somebody who um, will be using it in a, in the tra- in a traditional visual um, medium. Um, because I think there is something good about it. Like it forces you to think logic, you know, think about, is there a, is there a hierarchy to my information? Is it, is there a, a clear separation between different parts of my app? Um, are, you know, am, am I making too many assumptions? And so I think accessibility is something that you just have to, it's, just try and keep in your mind and have in the back of your mind as you're working on projects. And then the other thing I'd say too, in terms of the best tip I ever have about accessibility is listen, anytime you get a, a, a user who gives you feedback on an accessibility issue, address that, work on that. And that's how, how best I have learned how to be good at accessibility is you just by, you know, actually listening to people who use apps in a way that is different than mine. I learned so much and that's how I've gotten better at it. So anytime you have an opportunity to do that, dive in and do it right away. Yeah, I think we should we should probably do a whole episode on on some more detailed accessibility work. So we'll do that in the future. Um, But for now, uh, we will talk to you next week. Bye.